welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're going to break down this eighth episode of Star Trek Lower Decks entitled Veritas. For this episode, we'll summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end our podcast with the most recent Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis does contain spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. However, rest assured, we won't divulge too many of the jokes or Star Trek reference gags in the episode. So those moments will be fresh for you when you do get a chance to see it for yourself. (laughs) Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis. All right. Okay. So... As the USS Cerritos orbits Ketuvan Prime, our story opens with the Ensigns, Mariner, Boimler, Tindy, and Rutherford, finding themselves trapped in a dungeon, then elevated up to a darkened tribunal chamber. They have been called as witnesses to speak the truth about the senior officers of the Cerritos, who are being held aloft in a beam of light. Clar, the lead Ketuvian, presents them with the Horn of Candor, where each must speak the truth. Clar de- demands to know of the wondrous events of Captain Freeman on the bridge of the Cerritos during a confrontation with an alien race known as the Clicket. As Mariner and Boimler were late to arrive to their post, they don't really know what's going on except that the Clicket captain is very upset over how the captain thanked him them for giving her a map. There is even more miscommunication when Mariner fires a warning shot after the captain asks her to send a message which is supposed to have been a dinner invitation and not a phaser fire. Clark, not satisfied with the recollection of events, demands to know more about the map and threatens Mariner with the tank of contempt, which is full of giant wriggling eels. Up next is Rutherford, whose flashbacks should have satisfied Clark due to the accuracy of his cybernetic implant. But on the star date in question, the implant was malfunctioning and caused blackouts, leaving some frightened gaps in his some frightening gaps in his story about an undercover mission he went on with Shaxx and Billups. The disjointed story recalls a covert drop into a Vulcan museum to steal a Romulan bird of prey, a distracting fan dance, a perilous spacewalk with Billups having odd flashbacks due to being oxygen deprived, and then for some reason, a Gorn wedding. None of this satisfied Clark, so Rutherford is promptly sent over to hover over a eel tank alongside Mariner. When it's Tendy's turn to speak the truth, this time about Ransom, she's hampered by the fact that her story is classified by Starfleet. This tale turns out to be another failure to communicate since she's mistakenly joins a covert away mission aboard the Romulan Bird of Prey that Rutherford vaguely remembered helping to steal. 
Using that map to the neutral zone from two flashbacks ago, the overly enthusiastic Orion ends up joining Ransom's special ops force to extract the package from a facility on Romulus. Needless to say, Clar was not happy about this and sends all three testifying ensigns into the vat of eels. With his, with his friends in peril, Boimler finally puts on his big boy pants, laying on some truths, which is that the Lord Deckers, the ensigns, never know anything. They can't satisfy this odd line of inquiry about the senior officers, whom Clark imagines are all infallible heroes, like all members of Starfleet. So Boimler drops some more truth that the bridge crew of the Cerritos puts on their spacesuits one leg at a time just like everyone else. They make mistakes. On the Cerritos, Freeman confronts the instance, saying that their testimonies almost got themselves killed, but admires that they stood up for the ideals of Starfleet, despite their jeopardy. She notes that being worth some accommodation and promises that in the future they will do what they can to keep the lower deck crew more informed about what's happening on the ship. The four ensigns immediately begin asking questions about everything that just happened, overwhelming the senior staff and Freeman dismisses them, saying that the details are, well, classified. Mm -hmm. As they leave, Mariner simply says how She's fine with being left in the dark, since knowing more things mean more work, which is probably true. <laughs> Boimler tries to play it off like he always knew it was a party, and Mariner teases him, asking why he was cry started crying. As they talk, Q appears in front of them and challenges them to a duel, but Mariner is not in the mood for any of his antics and tells him to go bother Picard. Quick, Quickly, uh, Q just follows them, saying Picard is no fun with his constant quoting of Shakespeare and winemaking. Uh, so let's move on to the general analysis. Okay. Now, for those who may not know, Veritas is Latin for truth. In Roman mythology, Veritas is the goddess of truth, a daughter of Saturn, and the mother of Virtus. So the title was chosen to signal that this episode's adventure would be a search for or revealing of some truth. Our analysis for this episode covers only one plot because we only had one story featuring all of the characters of the show. Yes, I know we had three descriptive retellings of prior events by Mariner Rutherford and Tindy, but they were all connected to a single story that was the episode. The beauty of each story was funnier than, than the one preceding it. Unfortunately, I can't say that Veritas completely stuck the landing after the big reveal, but let's break down the elements of the episode and examine why I say that, say that a little bit more closely. 
Okay, let's first take the cold opening. Now, Veritas had a fantastic cold opening that immediately threw us into the conflict of the episode. For a 22-minute animated comedy series, this was an intense introduction to the story. It was suspenseful and immediately attention-grabbing. The serious tone was completely unexpected, but very welcomed on my part. Um, nevertheless, for the most part, it played as if it could have been seen as the opening of any of the live action series, in part because it was somewhat familiar. We've seen crew members snatched, and therefore, I think it was the best opening this season for uh, Lower Decks. We'll have to see if they can top it in the next two remaining episodes. In fact, it turns out that three-fourths of the events that led up to the adventures are being presented clearly in the retelling. So I'm really excited about this. So now let's turn to Clark and the trial. Yeah. At the beginning, everything, and I mean everything, was signaling that our four heroes had been captured and thrown into a Klingon-like prison. There was a sharpened, jagged interlocking teeth that was the door to their cell, the severe-looking walls without adequate lighting, and the absence of anything to sit on. The optics were reinforced when the floor under their feet began to elevate them toward a dark and ominous tribunal chamber above. Even the gavel declaring the commencement of the ceremony resembled the trial the Klingons conducted against Kirk and McCoy for the assassination of Chancellor Gorkhan from uh, in the movie Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. So it wasn't surprising when we see that the main prosecutor is a one-eyed, tough-looking alien named Clark who was voiced by actor Kirkwood Smith. His appearance, designed to make us think of General Chang and that Klingon tribunal. This was an excellent way to throw us a curveball. It was a brilliant way of giving us familiarity in all the visual elements. So first up, we had Mariner's tale. Now, she's chosen first to testify. Her retelling of the events that took place on Stardate 57818.4 was quintessential Mariner. Unaware as to why the ship is in red alert status, she decides to fake it till she makes it. In fact, she encouraged Boimler to take on this same philosophy, even though she's trying to cover up Rutherford's damage to the speakers in the re repair bay where they were. The decision does put both her and Boimler at a disadvantage. So much so that we see her making up a series of mistakes based on insufficient information or just lacking of uh, being observant. When Clark presses her about the map, Captain Freeman came back with, she can't even say much about it because she didn't pay any attention to it at all. And this is the first time in the show Mariner has not been able to figure out the best course forward. And I think it's particularly because she doesn't have the necessary information that she usually um, depends on to help inform how she's going to respond to a situation. That's right. Now let's talk about uh, 
the part of the episode that I really, really enjoyed, my favorite part of the episode, and that has to do with Rutherford's journey. When Rutherford is interrogated by Clark, he wants to know about the events on star date 57791.1. Here we learn two really important things about Rutherford. First, his first name is Samantha, which is a male version of the female name Samantha. The second thing is that his cybernetic implant gives him perfect memory of all things he's experienced, provided it's not upgrading its software at the same time. The only upside to that is that the implant will take over and protect him while he's unconscious. That's a great feature because he goes into autopilot to become a much better espionage agent than when fully conscious. I loved how Rutherford's upgrading sequences had him reawakening in completely different situations each time. He had gotten accustomed to it and thought he could avoid being attacked by an entire Gorn wedding party only to be reawakened and find himself being chewed on by the same Gorn wedding party members. And now let's talk about Tindy's mission. Unlike her crewmates, the Orion Ensign was more than willing to tell Clark what she knew, just with the classified information deleted. When Ransom and his team came into the conference room and found her cleaning, he immediately thought that she was, quote-unquote, the cleaner. Agreeing to the title without knowing that it's a code name, Tindy plays the, re- the remainder of her story mis- at, through the mistaken identity trope that we've seen so often in a lot of comedy. Mm-hmm. It's the least, well, I think it's it's hard to follow Rutherford's story. So it's not it's not that it's not funny. It's just it's just a little slightly less funny than Rutherford's adventure. Yeah, I mean for me it wasn't that funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. okay. It's just hard to believe that she could take out several armed Romulan soldiers um, without any assistance, which she right, does. Right. Okay. So in, in, in any event, I think it plays into her character to a certain extent. And um, it, 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 the, the, the irony of it is that we have this es- you know, escalating humor in all three of those storylines. And, and, and it builds up to this huge, big reveal. Yeah, so all this wackiness was for a thank you party celebration. Really? Now, I must admit, I think Gary was a little bit more disturbed by this than I was. I was. I was really disappointed. Uh, You know, this was the, you know, one disappointment in an episode that was actually full of laughs. And so, um, but I will agree that the finish was a bit underwhelming. So let's move on and talk about our favorite Easter eggs in an episode that seemed to be busting with these gems. Oh man, God. It's like, who? where, where do you start? Yeah. I mean, everything had something connected back to something that we had seen yeah. in, uh, or, or there was a reference in the dialogue yep. connected to all the series. And again, I'm going to say this. I know I've said this before. I know it sounds like a broken record. I love the fact that they incorporate elements of the animated series into this show oh yeah i mean it's just really really great to hear them talk about situations and circumstances from those episodes as they're talking about the history or past 
of Star Trek. So, so what was your favorite Easter egg? Well, you know, Adele, it was hard to choose. I mean, there was a cornucopia of Easter eggs this time around. That's right. But but I went with one that I think is an amalgam of several different storylines from a plethora of episodes. So, from the original pilot of Star Trek starring Jeffrey Hunter to the Calvin Universe films, there are numerous incidents where a crew member or the series regulars are captured by an adversary or a superior species. Uh, there's even a subset where those characters are put on trial in order to learn something about humanity or to be prosecuted for an alleged criminal offense or for the amusement of a more advanced being. Uh, some of those previous situations were used to shape how this episode played out. We've already talked about how so much was done to replicate the trial scene from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. But there's also elements of other storylines where the uh, members of the crew are put it put in some situation. I mean, you could talk about the gamesters of Triskelion from the original series. You could talk about the pilot episode in Carter at Farpoint, which is, again, where humanity is put on trial. And we find out in the series finale that they are still on trial. Um, but I also thought about the TNG season three, episode 17, Sins of the Father. Where we've, are, where there's again, there's another trial where Worf goes to defend the name of his father um, against the accusations of treason against the Klingon Empire. You know, we've seen this situation before, and again, it's similar in context in regards to it's a very, it's an ominous looking chamber. You know, you've got a group of people standing in in, in accusations about about a Worf's family and what they've done. Um, just in this case, all those elements are played out for a hilarious conclusion. So that's what I did. I picked episodes where crew members had been captured or put on trial. All right. Well, my Easter egg um, is different than that, of course. And as previously stated uh, in all the stories told by the Lower Decks crew, I most enjoyed the ones told by Rutherford. My Easter egg is referenced in the incident where Rutherford performs a fan dance to distract <laughs> a Vulcan guard right. while Lieutenant Shax tries to steal a Romulan bird of prey from a Vulcan museum. Oh, yeah. In the middle of the day. In the middle of the day. And I love the question later on. Why couldn't you just ask permission to use it? Right, right. <laughs> the distraction tactic is a direct reference to a fan dance performed by Lieutenant Commander Uhura on the planet Nimbus 3 as depicted in the worst film in the Star Trek movie series, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, directed by William Chandler. I dispute that. I don't, I don't think that's the worst film, but we'll go on. Yes. As, lo as long-time listeners probably know by now, Uhura is my favorite Star Trek character. However, for me, this film cannot be considered one of the proudest moments for the character or the actress who played her, Nichelle Nichols. In the 1989 film, Uhura sings 
the moons a window to heaven. Oh, Lord. To distract <laughs> an armed patrol so her Enterprise crewmates, led by Kirk, could steal their horses. Upon seeing Uhura dance seductively in the moonlight, all the patrol members scramble out toward her to get a closer look. Just as they are about to reach her, Kirk and the rest of the Enterprise landing party appear from behind Uhura with phasers pointed at the men. Uhura then tells the patrol, Hello, boys. I've always wanted to play to a captive audience. Yuck, yuck. Okay. For me, the scene was hard to watch. However, to be fair, Nichelle Nichols had no regrets about performing in the scene. In a February 1990 interview with Starlog Magazine, she stated, The fan dance wasn't just something thrown in for exploitative reasons. It was very much a part of the storyline, which made me very happy. Being a dancer made the preparation for it rather easy. The biggest problem in creating that scene was deciding just what kind of dance it would be. It had to be seductive, and yet I didn't want it to look too professional because the story indicated Uhura didn't have any dance background and was basically making something up on the spur of the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I respect and admire Miss Nichols, but... On this, we'll need to agree to disagree. The fan dance was an unnecessary sexist device used in a badly written and directed film with substandard production values. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty insulting um, situation to put a, both a talented actress and a revered show. I mean, it's just it's just gratuitous. It's dumb. Yes, and and the assumption that. You could draw people's attention yep. by doing some kind of seductive dance in the moonlight. That's right. And with a made-up song. Just really, it, it undercuts the supposed tension and threat that they impose to them. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, so it's, it, was, it's just, it was just it was just stupid. It was stupid. Right. That's the right word for it. Right. Now, I will say Star Trek V is an awful film. I just don't think it's the worst as long as the Calvin Universe movies are in existence. And so that's the reason why I dispute you on that. But let's move on and talk about other Star Trek news. So now let's talk about Kenneth Mitchell. Fan favorite actor Ken Mitchell voiced three characters in this Lord Dex episode. Um, first, it was the insect-like Captain Seer Tave, as well as two additional roles, a Federation guard and a Romulan soldier, bringing his total number of Trek roles to a wonderful number of six, representing four different species. Most fans will remember him best as the man behind the Star Trek Discovery Klingon Warriors call, which we saw in season one, and his father, Cole Shaw, which mm-hmm. we saw in season two as well as Tevenek, who is the keeper of the time crystals, who Pike went to to go get the time crystal that they used to actually go into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, he was at the Bereth um, Monastery. So in addition, we recently learned that Mitchell is will finally get to bear his human face when Discovery returns for its third season on October 15th. In a September 2020 issue, 
of the official Star Trek magazine, Mitchell revealed that... I'm playing a human character. It's beautiful, and I'm excited for the fans to meet him. I am also thankful for the continued support of the Star Trek producers, Jonathan Franks, and everyone at Secret Hideout who made this happen for me. For the new character in Discovery Season 3, I worked a lot with Mario uh, in the props department and the special effects department. So you can interpolate that as much as you want. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just say it's pretty damn cool and very unique and something Star Trek hasn't had a lot of. I think it was special they adapted this part for me. I think it will be meaningful to the Trek community and beyond. In 2018, Mitchell was diagnosed with ALS, a debilitating affliction that has required Mitchell to use a motorized wheelchair since 2019. And yet, Mitchell has been able to continue to work. However, his work is not the most valued thing in his life. In a recent article um, by Sci-Fi Wire, he stated, I'm more focused on my family than ever before. My kids are my everything. Thinking about them has been the hardest part. I don't want to ever leave them. Yeah. After Discovery Season 3, Mitchell says he's not sure what's coming next right now. He says he's hanging out a lot with Anson Mount and Ethan Peck, and he isn't ruling out showing up on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Um, Mitchell also commented, Being a part of Star Trek keeps me inspired and gives me purpose. Hopefully, that will keep going. Yeah, because, you know... The, the diagnosis that the ALS is going to continue to make his movements restricted. And so yeah. um, we wish him well. I'm looking yeah. forward to his engagement in this season. Yep. And I'm, I'm sure that the modifications to the, to the role was to assist in providing him with some kind of um, um, device that will help him function. So, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it, it's just I think it's just going to be wonderful. Yep. Okay, let's move on to Star Trek, the pod directive. As you know, by now, um, the podcast, Star Trek Pod Directive, premiered on Monday, September 14th, featuring co-host Tony Newsom of Lower Decks and comedian Paul F. Tompkins. Thus far, we've found the podcast to be worthwhile. However, we wanted to especially recommend the second episode, which dropped on Monday, September 21st. In this installment, Tawny and Paul sit down with with religious scholar, writer, and commentator Risa Aslan to discuss the role of religion in Star Trek. As part of the discussion, Risa takes a deep dive on the symbolism behind Darmok, one of the best episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Picard is captured then trapped on a planet with a Tamerian captain named Captain Dathan, who speaks a metaphorical language incompatible with the universal translator. They must learn to communicate with each other before a deadly planetary beast overwhelms them. As you can tell by the description, the show centers Picard and Dathan, played by Paul Winfield, to communicate with Dathan, Picard must first understand the Tamarian's language is based on metaphor. 
then he has to effectively empathize with the emotional meaning of that metaphor to fully understand its significance. As an example, Riza cited the religious metaphor, blood of the lamb. The phrase by itself would mean little to those who do not understand its significance. However, to a Christian, this is the crux of our belief that Jesus, who lived without sin, shed his blood by crucifixion as a sacrifice to save all believers from their sins and one day have eternal life. To survive his ordeal on the planet with Dathan, Picard had to understand and vicariously experience the emotional impact of the lessons of Temerian myth involving Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Although Catherine Dathan loses his life during the process, he felt the price worthwhile in order to broker a peace between the Federation and his people. Later in the podcast, Aslan also offered his opinions on why Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry insisted religion not be represented as a major facet of the lives of Federation societies. During the time when Roddenberry created the series, in some sectors there was a belief that religion would fall out of fashion as people would be more accepting of scientific concepts. However, Aslan, who identifies as a Muslim, contends the opposite has happened, as it seems more likely that religious and scientific thought will converge. Science, science asks how, and religion asks why. Aslan believes that over the next 200 or more years, these disciplines will come together and just be called science. By the way, as a sidebar, Aslan bemoans the fact no Star Trek series or film ever explained how the Universal Translator works. For instance, why should it ever work with an alien species they have never met? Also, where is the translator located? On your person or a device? Why does it work even when there are there are on an alien planet made to wear different clothes and do not have access to their devices. So true, so true, Gary. I mean, that's always been an issue with me. But anyways, we hope we've encouraged you to listen to the entire podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a very thoughtful one. And although I know a lot of Star Trek um, fans are not necessarily over religious. I do know that this is a really engaging conversation oh, yeah. um, in regards to how he looks at the process of a religious myth and how it co- connects to um, our understanding and conveying of meaning between communities. Yes. So remember, new episodes drop weekly on Mondays um, until November 9th. Fans can subscribe or download Star Trek The Pod Directive via StarTrek.com as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcasting applications. Okay, so we have one more update and that is on Star Trek film projects. We have this news from TrekMovie.com as Noah Hawley has been out promoting the new season of Fargo, he continues to drop more hints about his Star Trek movie, which was put on pause after Paramount brought in a new person to head up the motion picture department. The latest hints draw a distinction between his vision of Star Trek and the recent Kelvin movies. Speaking recently to the online magazine Observer, 
Noah Hawley described what he loved about Star Trek and the movies. What I love about Star Trek is that it's not a war story. It's not a story in which it might make might makes right. It's a story about exploration. It's a story about creative problem solving. My favorite moments of all Star Trek is in The Wrath of Khan when Kirk puts on his reading glasses to lower Khan's shields. It's a brief moment that is so exhilarating because he's using the best tool he has, which is his mind. The writer-director then went on to draw a comparison of his project to the three recent Kelvin-verse Star Trek movies. As much as I like Chris Pine's movies, they were mostly about running from one end of the ship to another and, and put out fires and or stop something. Mm-hmm. And then before he could catch his breath, he had to do something else. They're much more um, action films. And what I wanted to get back to was the idea of humanity justifying existence in the universe by showing its best qualities. Mm. Before Emma Watts was brought in by Paramount to serve as the head of his film division, his Star Trek project was placed on pause, but is still alive, according to to Hawley. Recently, Hawley also confirmed his Star Trek film would start from scratch with a a new crew of characters. He, He hasn't given away any plot details, except to say that it would deal with ideas of the Federation being challenged and it needed to be saved. Okay. Well, I'm actually looking forward to that. I hope it actually comes to fruition. So, in Me closing, too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. So, in closing, we'll be back next week with a review of episode nine of Lower Decks entitled Crisis Point. So, until that time, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, on Facebook, and at our website. Yeah, StarTrekAOD.net, um, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper. Yeah.